can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Go tell that long tongue liar. Go and tell that midnight rider. Tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter. Tell 'em that God's gonna cut you down. Tell 'em that God's gonna cut you down. Tell 'em that God's gonna cut you down. All right. Well, good morning again, everybody. We'll get to judges in a second. First, just a quick update. A couple weeks ago. Uh, our family was gone. It was nice to just be away. We've had enough people in our lives say, don't miss the baseball games. Don't miss it. Don't skip it. Don't miss it. It goes by quick. And so when we get a big trip, the, uh, our son Talon's team is playing out in Pittsburgh. They do one big trip a year. And so we're like, got to go, right? Got to go. Everybody says you got to go. So we went. And uh, super fun. And, and, and uh, whether it's sports or other things, our, our kids are both involved. Talon's big thing is baseball. Hallie's big thing is basketball. But um, they do all kinds of other stuff. Talon did a science Olympiad thing a few weeks ago. Hallie had some project, where she, some woodworking project that she had to get her grandpa's help with because um, for whatever reason, those skills skipped a generation. Um, I changed the light bulbs at home, though. Don't you worry. I take care of that. The, the uh, smoke detectors have fresh batteries, um, so I, I take care of the things that uh, dads are supposed to do. But it's just interesting watching, um, wh whether it's Hallie or Talon, and, and Talon in particular, his, he and his friends had a great weekend of baseball a couple weeks ago. All of them kind of had their moments. But it's fun to see your kids be in situations where they just got to dig deep, right? Like they, they got to find, it's, it's 90, 95 degrees, they're tired, they're hot, they got to find a way to come through. Sometimes they succeed, sometimes they don't, but they go down swinging either way, right? Like, and so that's fun to see. And so I just want you guys to know, like we've seen that in our kids, not just our kids, but in their teammates. And I want you to know for some of you who are from previous generations, maybe uh, you're a, a Gen Xer and you're starting to notice that you're getting a little bit old. Maybe you're a boomer and you're like, eh, old happened a long time ago, right? So wherever you're at, I, I, I need you to know that that Gen Z has not been lost, okay? They're coming up quick. Believe it or not, the millennials are all 25 and up. You're, you're, you're watching Gen Z grow up. They have the same potential that you all had. That they're, they're, They have the same potential that all your heroes had, all of your mentors had. Gen Z is going to be okay. So we, we've had the pleasure of kind of watching uh, our kids and, and their buddies grow up doing some of that stuff. And then last week, 4th of July... Uh, it was great to just kind of have, uh, if you're newer to Fieldstone, we kind of have this tradition, 4th of July weekend and New Year's weekend, we just take a break, everybody kind of go and do their thing, and so we were up late, and we slept in, and I forgot to take the two books I wanted to read with us, so I was on my phone way too much, um, but got a couple really solid rounds of golf in last weekend, and so we had a, we had a good couple of weeks, uh, but it's good to be back, kind of itching to get back and get at things, and caught up on some lunch meetings and some coffees this past week with some folks we need to connect with. But, um, so, so it's good to be back because we're, we're in this series in Judges. Kicked it off about three weeks ago, and then uh, our guy Eric Lash did a great job a couple weeks ago continuing with the story. But, but basically what we see in the book of Judges, if you've never read through, and I've come across a couple like lifelong church people who, who are unfamiliar with a lot of these Judges stories. It is a huge, Joe and I were talking this morning 
It is a huge transition book in the story of the Old Testament where they go from these, this period of wandering in the, in the wilderness and they get into the promised land and yet we discover just how bad things get when people start to stray from God and it leads to them wanting a king and all these different things. These stories of David and Solomon and Isaiah and Jeremiah and others all kind of flow through this transition period in the book of Judges. And what we find out is a, as a pretty common theme throughout the book is that as these different heroes and leaders rise up, we find out that God was with the leader and the spirit fell upon them. And that becomes the catalyst for anything exciting, anything good that happens for those individuals and for the people of God all starts with God choosing to pour out his spirit on that individual or on that group of people. And we see that even in the midst of disobedience, even in the midst of hardship and unknown circumstances, if God chooses to move, if God shows up, then deliverance and restoration follow. Sometimes it's messy. Eric uh, went through the story of Ehud a couple weeks ago. Pretty uh, rough stuff that happens in that story and other stories in the book of Judges. But even as God's people trend towards a broken cycle, when the Spirit of God moves, anything is possible. And all of, all of these different themes appear loud and clear in the life of today's heroes in Judges 4. And just a quick recap of where we've been. First week we talked about Othniel, a uh, great hero, married his cousin, which is a little bit weird, but it is what it is. It's ancient times. So Othniel, and then Eric talked about Ehud, which is basically, to summarize, he's a left-handed guy who performed a C-section on, on an evil king's bowels. Okay, he just did what he had to do there. Um, and we don't want to skip, there's a guy who just gets a couple verses, a guy named Shamgar. Don't want to skip him. Uh, in, at the end of Judges 3 there, it says, And after Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. So an ox goat is basically six to eight foot long pole with on the end of it part pointy spear, part fish hook looking thing. So you could prod and you can pull, kind of manage uh, your livestock as you needed to. He took out 600 guys. Probably not a uh, Bruce Lee style 600 Philistines where they're all coming at you at the same time. You're just one after the other. A little bit more of a Navy SEALs style of, of uh, thing. A little bit more stealth for Shamgar, I imagine. And so coming out of basically 100 years of peace for the Israelite people coming through Ehud and into Shamgar. And so we pick it up in Judges 4, and we meet um, uh, a couple different individuals. But first, we see the pattern of Judges continue. It says in verse 1, Again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Heroshith Hagoyim. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. And so what we see is that this pattern that we talked about in week one continues on, where they have these seasons of obedience, where they're living according to God's way and his plan and his will for their lives and because of their obedience, he pours out blessings on them. They experience life in obedience to Jesus, in obedience to God and his will and the things that he gave them in the Torah, those first five books of the Old Testament. But then they begin to stray and they move away from what God wants, move away from his will. In some cases, doing the exact opposite of what God would want for them. And because of that, he allows those consequences to play out on their lives. And they experience anything from 
oppression at the hands of an evil empire to full exile where Babylon or, or others would come in and, and completely wipe them out and take the, the brightest and best back to their homeland and take them away from Jerusalem, away from their homeland of Israel. And then after sometimes decades, sometimes hundreds of years, God would deliver them. Because in the midst of their consequences, they would eventually cry out to God and become, come back to him in obedience. And the cycle would start all over again. That's where we find ourselves yet again. And this time, it's a foreign king with a military way more technologically advanced with the, with the chariots and the horses. And they're oppressed until God raises up a couple unlikely heroes that we begin to meet. And first, we meet a hero named Deborah. Judges 4, verse 4. Now, Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes settled. So Deborah, what we find out, is a woman who, who not, you know, in the ancient world, they, they weren't put in positions of influence in ancient cultures. Shoot, take modern cultures even up to 50, 60, 70 years ago, and women weren't often put into positions of influence. But we find out that Deborah is a wife, very likely a mother, and probably fulfilling all that comes with those two very important roles. Deborah is a judge, settling legal disputes, other civilian conflicts that come her way. And Deborah is a prophet, which includes lots of prayer, lots of fasting, lots of studying and getting to know the God of the Scriptures. What we, what we see in Deborah is that there are no ox goad stories. Right? There's no eight-foot-long pole with a spear taking out 600 Philistines. There are no jawbone of a donkey stories that we'll see in the story of Samson in a couple weeks. No battle experience. This is not G.I. Jane. This is not Joan of Arc. This is not Laura Croft, Tomb Raider. This is a wife. This is a mom. And yet, even as someone who wouldn't normally be put in those positions of influence, God provided direction for his people through her. And God chose to provide justice and peace through her. And God chose to provide deliverance and protection through her. And God chose to speak his truth and express his will through her, a very unlikely leader, a very unlikely hero in the book of Judges. So Deborah is the first one that we meet. And then we meet another individual as we continue on in the next few verses. Let's go verse 6. It says, Deborah sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Nephtali. We're going to come back to that location in a second. And she said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. So now she's quoting God to Barak. And God said, go, take with you 10,000 men of Nephtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, says, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. <gasps> no. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, and there Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up, went up under his command. Deborah also Went with him. So we got to stop there for a second. So, so it's easy here to be a little bit hard on Barak because God calls him and puts him in a position to lead and, and, and lead through battle, similar to the way he did with Othniel, similar to the way he did with Ehud 
similar to the way he will with Gideon and others in the future. And yet Barak is like, if, if you go, I'll go, but I'm, I'm not really super excited about it. But we, we can't be too harsh on Barak here. And this goes back to the location that he's from. So it mentions Nephtali. It mentions Zebulun. These are two of the tribes of Israel. So it says that Barak is from Kadesh, which is a city, in Naphtali. So there were 12 tribes of Israel. It gets a little bit complicated when Joseph, one of the 12, had two sons, and those two kind of get added in. So it's 12 slash 13. So when, if you go back to uh, Abraham, his son was Isaac. Isaac's son was Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and those sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. So they end up in Egypt. Then they end up enslaved to the Egyptians. Moses leads them out, across the Red Sea, through the wilderness. Joshua leads them into the Promised Land. And once they have conquered all the lands that God had had them to conquer, the, the land then became their inheritance. It was promised to Abraham centuries before, and now it's being given to the people of Israel. And so as it, so Joshua begins to distribute. Okay, Naphtali, here's your land. Go, be fruitful and multiply. This is for, build your family tree in this section of the promised land. Inhabit the cities, farm the land, do all these things. Okay, Zebulun, here's your section. Okay, sons of Joseph, here's your section. Reuben, here's your tribes allotted land. Everyone got their piece of the pie when it came to the promised land. All 11 were given a portion of the land as their inheritance, except for one tribe, the tribe of Levi. So the Levites, they were different. They were set apart for God's work. Their job was to work in the temple. Their job was to offer sacrifices and all the things that came along with some of those priestly duties. In fact, it comes up as they get done distributing all this land. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, it says, The Levitical priests, this tribe of Levi, indeed the whole tribe, are to have no allotment or inheritance with Israel. They shall live on the food offerings presented to the Lord, for that is their inheritance. So they didn't get a section of land. They didn't get all of these things given to them as an inheritance. They lived off of... So when the other tribes would bring their 10% as an offering to the temple, the Levite tribe would live off of that. Verse 2 says, They shall have no inheritance among their fellow Israelites. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. So their inheritance wasn't tangible. Their inheritance was the Lord, which I think is something beyond what we can, because we obviously you want that tangible thing, right? This is, what we, this is how we benefit from the conquest of the promised land. This is what we inherit from our father Abraham, passed all the way down through Isaac and Jacob and now to us. So theirs wasn't tangible. Theirs was something a little bit more relational, something more intimate with the Lord. And I don't fully understand it. I, 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 it doesn't say this in the Bible. I, I, I truly believe that those who commit themselves to a life of service and ministry experience something different. I don't know what that means. Maybe that's just all of the Christians get, hey, uh, well done, good and faithful servant, and then they just get a little wink at the end maybe. I don't know how it's different, but I have to believe it's a little bit different. And so the Levites, they were not given a specific section of land, but they were given cities to live in in the midst of the other tribes' lands. And so if you go back to Joshua 21, you find that, that Kadesh, the city that Barak is from, is a city within the land of the tribe of Naphtali, but Kadesh 
is a Levite city. So they would say to the Levites, here's your city within the land of Benjamin. Here's a city for you within the land of Reuben. So Kadesh is a Levite city within the land of the tribe of Naphtali, which means that very likely Barak is a Levite. Now, why does that matter? You say, Justin, I, I love all the 12 tribes equally. When I see, I don't see tribe, Justin. I just see people, right? You don't discriminate. Good for you. But here's why that matters. The Levites, in, in addition to all their other roles, were exempt from military service. And so going back to when they entered the promised land with Joshua, you now have generation after generation growing up with no military training, no military experience, no military expectation, no military legacy to draw from, no great-grandpa who fought in the war who can say, it's in your blood, boy, go get him, right? There is, there is no military service. They were responsible instead for the spiritual leadership of the people. And it wasn't all touchy-feely spiritual stuff. They were worship leaders. They were in charge of offering sacrifices. They taught the scriptures. They did miscellaneous work in and around the temple. They were musicians. They were craftsmen. They were judges, sometimes gatekeepers. Their job was the temple and the spiritual work of the Israelite people. What they were not was warriors. Not even pretend soldiers at the back of the pack. I always wonder when you watch movies like Ben-Hur or Spartacus or Braveheart or some of the more recent ones, I always wonder, like, there's all, they always show the guys at the front charging crazy with their face painted. There had to be some dudes at the back going, oh, is it over? Oh, I, I was, I was going to kill some Philistines too. I was way back there though. I couldn't get up towards the front. I'm sorry. The Levites weren't even those guys because they didn't have to be there. No expectation, exempt from military service. So Barak as a Levite, was born into a beautiful calling, an honorable life, a blessed career path, but not a warrior. In fact, do you know how Deborah and Barak celebrate the events that are about to go down? They finish up the battle that we're about to read about by writing a song together. <laughs> we're talking, as, as we read through this next section, this battle scene, this great warrior Barak, right? We're, we're literally talking about Sonny and Cher, we're talking about Lionel Richie and Diana Ross. We're talking about Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. This is not a warrior. This is a wife and a mother and a musician. Sorry, no offense, Brian, right? Like, musicians are great. Love. But the, the, so with that in mind, we get to the bloody part. Back to Judges chapter 4, verse 12. Just to remind you of the characters. You've got bad guys, King Jabin. General Sisera, good guys, Deborah and Barak, okay? So when they told Sisera that Barak had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and the army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. A couple of things to point out. So it says, again, going back to this theme in Judges where God shows up, the Holy Spirit does it. It says the Lord routed 
Sisera. Never forget that theme. It's all throughout the book of Judges. And now Sisera, he's been defeated, but now he's running away on foot, trying to get away. Verse 16, Barak pursued the chariots and army, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael. She was the wife of Heber the Kenite because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. So Jael is another housewife living in this tent community, and her entire family that she married into has made a, a truce, a peace, with the evil king. Verse 18, it says, Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone there, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died, in case you were wondering how that played out. Verse 22, just then Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I'll show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin until they destroyed him. So a couple things I want to point out here. First thing. I think in Deborah, we see a beautiful example of godly leadership. Of all the judges with an extended story. Because there's a couple like Shamgar who just, they just get a couple quick verses. But of all the ones with an extended story, you've got Ehud, he's just left-handed. You got Gideon, turns out to be a big mess. You have Jephthah, who we're going to talk about in a few weeks, turns out to be a big mess. Samson turns out to be a big mess. Deborah is the only one who's solid from start to finish. And when I see her leadership, just simply based on her words and her actions, I think we see some things about godly leadership. I think we see that godly leadership speaks the truth. We see that godly leadership leads with faith and optimism, even when things are unclear or success seems like a long shot. In Deborah, we see that godly leadership leads with wisdom and understanding beyond their experience because it's God's wisdom at work. In Deborah, we see that godly leadership leads with integrity even in the midst of difficult or deteriorating circumstances. We see that godly leadership regularly seeks God's will, God's voice, and God's instruction. Godly leadership encourages and empowers others to pursue God's will for their lives. I think in Deborah, we see that godly leadership doesn't leave you hanging. And godly leadership doesn't always look the way you think it should look. I think in Deborah, we see that godly leadership has very little to do with the person leading except for their submission to and reliance on God. They're simply the first follower. And I think in Deborah, we see that godly leadership is a quality worth pursuing and always worth following. Deborah is a very significant 
leader, a very significant character, not just in the book of Judges, but in the entire scope of Scripture. We also have Barak, right? With, with, even with his limitations and the position that he's put in, I think in Barak we see that God might call you to a life or a mission outside of the logical path. God might lead you to a life outside of your current skills, outside of your current experience, outside of the talent you have, outside of your current level of training. God might lead you to a life outside of what your past would seemingly indicate about who you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to do. Maybe a life outside of what your family tree would dictate. Maybe your past indicates that your future must lie in a world of higher education and a prestigious career. Maybe God has other plans. Maybe your past indicates that your, your future should be shaped by athletics. Maybe God has other plans. Maybe your past indicates that your future will be something blue-collar. Or maybe it'll be involved doing things that are risky or taking chances. Or on the opposite, maybe playing it safe most of the time. But maybe God has other plans that take you outside of the logical path. God might call you to a life of quiet humility, even though your family tree is loud and outspoken. God might call you to boldly speak the truth, even though your family tree prefers to keep it in and keep the peace. Even if you're from a family of lions, God might call you to shepherd his people. And even if you're from a family of humble shepherds, God might call you to be a warrior on the mission field. Maybe like jail, you're in a position to do things God's way and remain loyal to his word, but you've grown up in or married into a family that has zero interest in either of those things. Maybe how you see you is different than how God sees you. There's another story later on in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel where we, for the first time, meet the great hero King David. Obviously a, a very recognizable name in Scripture, but it all comes about because uh, the first king of Israel is King Saul, and we see another one of those examples where God withdrew his spirit from King Saul because of his disobedience and rebellion. And so God says, you know what? We're, we're not going to pass this down your lineage. We're going to start fresh with another family. And so he sends the prophet Samuel um, to find the next king. And we find that happening in 1 Samuel 16. And God sends him to the home of a man named Jesse. It says in verse 6, When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, Jesse's first son, and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's 1 Samuel 16, 7, if you want to highlight that and stick it on your refrigerator. Verse 8, Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. 
So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, a little call back to Judges, the Spirit of the Lord fell powerfully upon David. All the tangible data might not line up. But when God shows up, anything is possible, no matter who you are. And so then the question for us, the question for you simply becomes, are you willing to say yes? When God puts something in front of you, when God directs your path, when God calls you to a new mission, a new place, maybe outside of what's logical, maybe outside of what's comfortable, maybe outside of what your talent is, outside of what your experience is, outside of what your age or gender or race or socioeconomic background is. Maybe God calls you to something that doesn't make sense. Are you willing to say yes? Are you willing to say yes even before you can see the end, even if you still need help in the midst of it or encouragement or need a push like Barak did, even if the end goal requires something that greatly exceeds your current abilities? Are you willing to say yes when the calling matches God's word but doesn't match the city you're in or the family you're in or the history that you're being called out of? Are you willing to say yes? The world needs godly leadership. The world needs godly people. Sometimes that requires a shift from what you think of yourself, from what you expect of yourself, from what you see in yourself. But are you willing to say yes? Let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, these individuals that you've um, told us about in Scripture. Real people, real stories, real lives, and you've used their experiences to teach us and to encourage us and challenge us. God, first, we're, we're sorry that we make it messy sometimes. We're sorry that we stray from what you've called us to and what you expect of us and what's best for us. And yet, God, in these moments, we see the Debras of the world and the Baraks of the world and the jails of the world. God, thank you that we can learn from their ability and their courage to say yes. God, we face so many uncertain things, seemingly more now than ever, and yet, God, we pray that you would guide us, protect us, give us the wisdom that we need. Um, and to echo the great quote from years ago, God, we know that you don't call the equipped. We know that you equip the called. And so we stand on that, we rest in that, and we move forward in that. In Jesus' name, amen.